The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Hello and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. We have another millennial takeover this hour. My name is Maggie Thompson. I'm with Generation Progress. And really, I just wanted to remind folks that millennials were the only ones that voted in the majority for Hillary Clinton. So I just think maybe we should take everything over these days. Um, So I just wanted to... um, Welcome our first guest into studio today. We're really going to be talking today about the Trump resistance. Obviously, a lot of us are terrified about what uh, November means for us going forward, not just for our progressive priorities, but for our families and our communities. So we have in studio with us one of the leaders of that movement, Beatrice Lopez. Beatrice is the Managing Director of Communications at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Welcome, Beatrice. Thank you. Well, you know, we really want to kick off this hour and talk about a guy named Steve Bannon. So Steve Bannon, there's just so much one can say about this man, but he's uh, President-elect Trump, I have to say it, President-elect Trump's uh, choice for top strategist in the White House and really is, uh, you know, by all measures, someone that can be accurately called a voice of racism. And I think that this this pick being one of the first ones by the Trump administration is something that's just raising alarm bells across the country. Um, and Beatrice, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about this and, you know, about how picks like Bannon really normalize what's called economic nationalism or what some people try to call the alt-right. But here at the center, we just call white supremacy. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about how the Bannon pick, what, what is it about this guy that normalizes white supremacy and sort of what, what are the main things that you're concerned about? Sure. I mean, when you look at Steve Bannon, I mean, it's just, he's trying to normalize racism. And this is what, you know, Breitbart has done so well, which is use a lot of euphemisms and a lot of sort of messaging strategies uh, to make sort of the white sheet into beautiful words. <laughs> but we know what it what it really means, yeah. right? When he's, I mean, he just recently said, you know, uh, there was that only people who are property owners should vote, should be allowed to vote. And when they told him, oh, that that would exclude a lot of African Americans, and he said that's actually not a bad thing. I mean, this is the guy who's working with the president elect right now, who's going to be close, right there in the White House. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. It's just horrifying. Yeah. Um, and he's not the only one that we should no. be concerned about. No, You know, one of the mm-hmm. other uh, people that we wanted to talk about this hour is Jeff Sessions. He's a U.S. senator from Alabama who is Trump's pick for attorney general. What, mm-hmm. Tell us, introduce us to Jeff Sessions. This guy has been the number one enemy for uh, cross com- uh, communities of colors uh, and the LGBT uh, community, uh, so many of the communities that are in danger when we talk about Jeff Sessions. I come from the immigration movement, um, and this guy has been like number one enemy who's been uh, an opponent, who's blocked so many things, and has put forth uh, policies that are anti-immigrant, and um, and he's, uh, I mean, this is a guy who called the NAACP a, a communist organization, who called anybody who supported uh, the NAACP a traitor to the race. This is, I mean, this is the guy who's going to be right there uh, representing uh, the rights of people. 
Yeah, and it's just uh, unbelievable. And I think what's so disheartening um, to a lot of us is that he, he would be replacing, if he's confirmed, um, two African-American attorneys general, um, which was a huge step forward for our country. Mm-hmm, and now it just mm-hmm. feels like this massive backslide. Oh, yeah. This is a uh, complete like slap in the face of any progress that we've ever made. So yeah. I, don't, I, I know things sound really bleak based on yeah. what we're talking about. <laughs> but um, Beatrice, I feel like you are one of the people that's really leading this effort to push back and fight back and resist. Obviously, um, we have to respect the electoral process. You know, this is this guy is going to be our president. But what can we do to stop some of these appointments from going forward? And sort of what's the call to action that we as progressives can can rally around? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, there's many different strategies. Obviously, social media is one, getting the word out, making sure that people understand who is Jeff Sessions. This is like the first time Jeff Sessions really being introduced to, like, the the greater public. Uh, I don't think many people outside of Alabama and D.C. actually know who Jeff Sessions is, for instance. Other people don't know what Steve Bannon is, so we have to sort of put out, you know, air their dirty laundry as much as possible. Uh, folks should be calling their their um, members of Congress to make sure that they're, uh, they're you know, we have this whole um, hashtag going on, dump Bannon. Like, they should be asking that he actually step out, uh, calling on Trump and calling on their members of Congress. So as much as communication out to your members of Congress that you can do is, is what we can do for now. But, I mean, it's all about creating that surround sound sort of uh, – resistance sort of uh, sort of like uh, voices really coming out in the mm-hmm. attack. We haven't done that enough. Yeah, and oh, not well. letting them get away with it. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, when it comes to, you know, some of these positions as well, obviously a lot of, especially young people, don't know who Steve Bannon is, yeah. don't know who Jeff Sessions is, but I think also, you know, I think there's a lack of understanding about just how powerful, I mean, I think people mm-hmm. get the attorney general is a powerful person. That's pretty basic. But when it comes to how does this affect my life, a lot of young people don't get that. Get that. Like, yeah, yeah. what does the Department of Justice do? And like, what what could, you know, what do, what are your biggest concerns about a Jeff Sessions as attorney general? Sort of like, you know, like what should people be worried about and like calling their senator about? Yeah, I mean, it's a number of things. I mean, there's some. Uh... You know, he's supposed to, uh, an attorney general is supposed to sort of protect the rights of the most vulnerable people. And so just think about who these vulnerable people are. You know, we're talking about uh, gay rights here. We're talking about immigrant rights. Um, instead of protecting them, they can, they can infringe upon voting rights, for God's sakes. Uh, and what we and we saw how voting rights and voter suppression laws have affected affected states in, for instance, North Carolina. Uh, so the, and this is the attorney general is supposed to sort of oversee that, protect that, or at least see how. But if we don't have anybody actually at the front lines to make sure that voting rights are being protected, then, well, I mean, <laughs> we're kind of screwed. I hate to say that word. But, I mean, this, and, and if you think that doesn't directly impact you, then, you know, look again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's sort of the fabric the fabric of our, our country and democracy. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. So, and you know, I think that um, one of the other 
pieces of this that's so concerning to me is that, um, you know, because he's been in the Senate for so long, you know, you sort of worry that some of these guys, they, you know, like, uh, I think, was it Senator Grassley, Chuck Grassley from Iowa, yeah, talking one. about, you know, sort, sort of this guy's his buddy. He wants to get him through. So I think um, just what you were saying about sort of making enough noise so that they don't get away with it. Mm-hmm. And I think any um, sort of racist thing he's ever said, any senator that votes for him to be attorney general, like, they need to own that. And we need to make them own it because that's what they're voting for if they want this guy as attorney general. Yeah. Exactly, because no longer can they stand in silent. I mean, this is the problem what happened in sort of our, our election overall when people were even sort of defending Trump, defending um, Steve Bannon. I mean, and they were talking about the economic anxieties. That's fine, but you can't look away from the blatant racism and xenophobic re- rhetoric. And now members of Congress are going to actually have to put a vote out there. Mm-hmm. So they can't just look away. They can't just ignore it. And we should be... We should hold them to the fire. We should hold them accountable for that because this time you're voting. This time you just can't just turn and look away. Right, right, mm-hmm. or pretend that you're not endorsing him exactly. or endorse him late or endorse him but not enthusiastically. This is a vote. This is a, on mm-hmm. the record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are there particular senators that we need to be watching out for the most that people should be, if you're in one of these states, like you need to call in now? I mean, yeah, I mean, think about sort of, um, I mean, actually it's just, all senators should be called, you know, be calling. But, um, you know, if you're in... So no uh, one's off the hook. Everybody nobody's needs to off be the calling. Hook. Yeah, everybody should go. I mean, because this is sort of an, you know, we're... This is, this, is, this is the United States, which is supposed to be a nation not only of immigrants, but of progress, of really pushing against the, the tide of racism. And if we allow people like this to just represent the country, then what are we saying to the rest of... The, the world, but what are we saying to to our children? What are we as as millennials doing about it? If we care about it so much, put your money where your mouth is and make sure that you're calling all yes. these senators. Yes, no, that's right. So Beatrice, before we go to break, where can people go to get more information about this and figure out exactly what they got to say to their senator to get them back in line? Sure. Um, you know, you could either find us on Twitter. You know, um, just uh, search um, Dump Bannon or uh, go to our Cap Action um, uh, Twitter handle. There's a lot of information there. Uh, if you go to our media. Medium uh, site of Cap Action, you'll have all the information that you need there. There's a transition tracker where you you could follow up on who's who are the nominees. You could follow up on dump uh, the dump Bannon campaign as well, and much more. There's a lot of great information in our Medium site at Cap Action. Yeah, absolutely. So let's hold these guys accountable. You know where to go now to get the information, and please call your senator because this is only the the first of many fights we're going to have on this. Uh, This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after a quick break. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, Millennial Takeover. Uh, this is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. 
In this hour, we're talking about the Donald Trump administration and really just having a lot of leaders of uh, what I'm calling the resistance movement, for lack of a better term. Um, so I wanted to introduce our next guest. Uh, this hour, we wanted to talk about Donald Trump's quote-unquote infrastructure plan, which really is just a corporate tax giveaway. Don't let him actually call the plan. Um, but I wanted to introduce an expert in this field, Kevin DeGood. Uh, Kevin's the Director of Infrastructure Policy here at the Center for American Progress. And welcome, Kevin. Yeah, thank you so much. Glad to be here to talk. Well, I, I was just telling Kevin over the break that this was one of the things that it was so frustrating to me because, you know, on the on the left, we've been talking for so long about the need to put America to work and rebuild the nation's infrastructure. And that's something we've talked about and talked about. And we couldn't even get a transportation bill out of the Republican Congress. And now all of a sudden, Donald Trump comes in and, and they want to have this big infrastructure plan. So, uh, Kevin, could you talk just a little bit, like, what is the, the, the shorthand right. um, for what Donald Trump's infrastructure plan, for listeners, I'm doing quotes with my hands, is? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the biggest misconception is that it's really, it, that it is a plan and that he's talking about spending real money. I mean, if we compare it to what Secretary Clinton talked about a great deal on, on the trail, which is we need to put you know, several hundred billion dollars into America's critical assets. That's everything from traditional things we think about, like highways and, and public transportation, but that also includes airports, levees, locks and dams, you know, seaports, things of that nature. Um, but the Trump plan doesn't do any of that. It doesn't put real money on the table. Instead of delivering, you know, resources that communities could use to build projects, this is just a tax cut for elite Wall Street investors. And, you know, there's some details to it which can be a little tricky, but I think the important thing to recognize is that it's a way that the federal government is going to push state and local departments of transportation, water authorities, agencies like that, uh, instead of using traditional low-cost municipal bond financing to go out and try to tap into uh, really expensive private equity capital uh, through public-private partnerships. And that's a very in vogue uh, concept and term, public-private partnerships or P3s. But in this case, what it just means is a really expensive way to build things that we could build through traditional municipal bonds. So, so basically this, this plan, again in quotes, is, is that you're – local department of transportation or state department of transportation instead of sort of you know getting a bond like they usually would they'd have to go find some hedge fund who's going to charge them a bunch of fees to build that road or build that bridge exactly and and really what the heart of their plan envisions is more tolling and more user fees generally so this plan is structured to try to support big new construction highway capacity where you're going to charge tolls and you know the benefit from the wall street perspective is there's a real chance to earn high rates of return and part of the reason for that is that transportation facilities don't really behave like competitive markets in fact transportation facilities are much more like a utility or or a monopoly good mm -hmm. so if you're thinking about your drive into work if you're thinking about how you get access to clean water or what you do with effluent from your house there's only one pipe that brings water and for most people there's only one or maybe two ways that they can get to work and, and back home in the evening and so you're really uh, beholden to what you have in front of you. And if that what you have in front of you is an expensive toll highway, then that's a charge that you're going to have to pay. And knowing that, uh, Wall Street investors would really love to get their hands on more of America's infrastructure assets because there's the potential to make a whole lot of money. And this plan pushes states in that direction. Right. So instead of rebuilding our public infrastructure, it's sort of a, a giveaway. I mean, it just feels like this is such a shift in spirit from sort of the original, you know, you think of 
you know, Eisenhower, a Republican, and the American highway, I mean, the it's, it's a part of the American lifestyle. And right. sort of, I guess, you know, is this something that you think um, in any way, like, obviously it's, it's going to be sort of um, generating profits for Wall Street instead of building out a public good, but, like, is this going to work? Is it, or is this sort of a pie-in-the-sky plan? I think that's a great question. And, you know, this plan, such as it is, truly walks away from many of the communities that believed in Donald Trump and, and helped to deliver him to the White House. One of the ways we can think about this is the, the size of the projects for which an equity financing model works. If we look at data from the U.S. Department of Transportation over roughly the last 20 years, we see that the average project size using uh, this public-private partnership model with equity is right around $1.25 billion. These are huge projects. And the truth of the matter is most communities don't have projects like that that they need. They need to go out and, you know, replace aging water lines that are 75 or 100 years old. They have roads that have been pitted because of the freeze-thaw cycle every winter. They've got a bottleneck or a bridge that needs replacing. These are projects that might be anywhere from 2 to $15 million, but they look nothing like the kinds of mega projects that, that can fit at times inside of this P3 model. So if we consider the several trillion dollars worth of need out there, this P3 could work for maybe half of 1% of that. And again, it's really wow. only something that's going to be attractive in big metropolitan areas because you just have to have a lot of people using these facilities day in and day out in order to generate those user fees. So if you're from a rural community or a smaller town or maybe uh, you know an industrial Midwest uh, community that has had some population loss, that's just not conducive to these kinds of you know models for development. So shorthand is this is Trump's infrastructure plan is not a plan. <laughs> exactly. It's a corporate tax giveaway to That's Wall true. Street, and even if he was able to get it through, it's not going to work. Absolutely. Um, what it, just thinking about the political environment right now? What can people do about this? I mean, what you know, what do, what do they tell their congressmen if if people want to get on the phones? I think they tell them that this is not what they signed up for, that what they're looking for is real leadership from Congress and real money on the table. So if we're serious about improving the economy, if we're serious about putting people back to work, if we're serious about removing health threats like lead in the water or congestion and smog, then we have to be able to put actual dollars on the table. And that's going to take some political will, and that's what they should demand of their legislators and of President Trump. Absolutely. So this is uh, Kevin DeGood, the Director of Infrastructure Policy here at the Center for American Progress. He actually just published a piece outlining everything we've just talked about here. And Kevin, where can people go for more information about um, Trump's non-plan tax giveaway infrastructure thing? Well, if they come to the Center for American Progress uh, econ team page, they'll see this report today. And if they uh, click on my name for my bio, then all the pieces are there, including several others about public-private partnerships. Awesome. Thanks for clearing this up for us, Kevin. It's not real, folks. Thank you. <laughs> this is the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll, we'll be back after a quick break talking about education in the world of Trump. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. All right, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back, everybody. This is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. We have a millennial takeover yet again. Um, I said it last hour, but I'll say it again. Millennials were the only generation to vote in the majority for Hillary Clinton, so I think we should take everything over. 
Um, so I am here. We're, gonna, we're talking about the Trump resistance and sort of what we can expect from some of Trump's nominees um, for his administration this hour. And we have two of my favorite rabble-rousers here in the studio with me um, to help us talk about Donald Trump's pick for the Department of Education. So in studio, I have Will Ragland, who's the campaign director for education policy here at CAP. Welcome, Will. Hello. Um, and I also have Elizabeth Baylor, who's the Director of Post-Secondary Education Policy, also here at the Center for American Progress. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. All right. So who did Donald Trump pick for Education Secretary? Tell me about this person. Well, he picked uh, a woman by the name of Betsy DeVos, who, in line with some of his other picks, is also, surprise, surprise, a billionaire. Um, <laughs> it's a theme. <laughs> seems to be. Um, her... her uh, she comes to these bill, billions in several ways, but the, the biggest one is her husband, who is part of the Amway fortune in oh, Michigan. Isn't that a scammy, stacked marketing thing? Yeah, pyramid scheme is what some people may mm, call it. Mm. Um, and she has a, a long history uh, in the state of Michigan and elsewhere pushing um, uh, efforts to privatize our public schools. Uh, one of the main ones is a thing called private school vouchers, which would take taxpayer dollars and move it into uh, a voucher type of program that uh, would, would, would allow parents to use that money for private schools, uh, which some people may think, hey, what's, what's wrong with that? It's usually nowhere near enough to cover the actual tuition of an average private school. Um, She's also been very, played, played a big role in the deregulation of, uh, of charter schools um, and uh, the expansion of them in, in, in many states. And, uh, you know, she calls it school choice. Um, you know, school choice on its own, there, there's a, there, her brand is, is, is not so good. Um, the, the deregulation and, and expansion of charter schools with very little oversight, uh, very, li uh, very little expectation to, to, to live up to the same types of standards that traditional public schools do, uh, creates problems in this battle for resources. She wants to turn K through 12 schools into a business and then not hold them to to standards is, is what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, she she is uh, she has uh, played a big role in the state of Michigan to drive um, charter schools. Not only charter schools, uh, which in in and of themselves aren't bad. In fact, they were the idea for them came from a, a union leader, Al Shanker. Um, but uh, to uh, Eighty percent of the char charter schools in the state of Michigan are run by for-profit entities. Wow. Uh, with uh, you know their main um, priority uh, being their bottom line. Yeah, yep. So for-profit schools, that sounds a little bit familiar, Elizabeth. I know that that's something that you are an expert in. What what happens when schools are run like businesses and the main incentive is, is profit? So unfortunately, what happens is the student get, gets uh, takes second seat and profit takes the first seat. And we end up seeing a lot of students not getting a value from a program and in the higher education space, when students are footing the bill for tuition as individuals, uh, it's a real problem. Uh, over the last five years, we've had a lot of issues with for-profit colleges, uh, and the Obama administration has done a lot of work to hold them accountable. And this is uh, this woman's record is a real, really concerning for whether or not she will be a tough cop, cop on the beat for the for-profit college industry in the United States. Um, two big entities, Corinthian Colleges and ITT, have collapsed in the last couple of years because they defrauded so many students 
uh, that that government entities and the federal government no longer had confidence in them. But if someone like Betsy DeVos with her private sector approach comes in, she might let these colleges run wild and students will have to pay bear the cost of it. Right. So it feels like this is uh, sort of the grand new experiment, running schools like businesses, having Wall Street make a profit off of a school. And I feel like, I mean, I know more about the sort of scams in higher education and schools like ITT Tech. And I feel like, you know, we had that experiment and it failed. You know, we tried the run of school like a business thing and it was a disaster. It was a disaster for students. It was a disaster for taxpayers. Well, I know that this is a little bit newer in the K through 12 section, but could you talk a little bit more? I know that you said like a lot of the uh, the charter schools um, that she supports in Michigan are also run like for profits. Is there any evidence that they're performing well or doing right by students? Well, I think it it, re- it, it really varies, uh, just like uh, performance with traditional public schools vary. Uh, but the big thing uh, that I, I think is important to note is uh, her push for the private school vouchers. Uh, what we do know is um, from the Brookings Institute just this past May that students that receive this type of voucher uh, are performing worse than their same peers that are um, in traditional public schools. We've seen um, reports from state after state that are running these types of programs showing that they are, they are having very little effect. Um, so, you know, so that, that I guess that's where I'll leave it. I mean, um, the, 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 that and the fact that the, the private schools that um, uh, that that are going that that are serving a lot of the children from the wealthiest and the most elite. Um, most of these voucher programs wouldn't even be able to cover uh, a tenth of their cost. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a, that's the basic Betsy DeVos 101 Trump's pick for education secretary. And we actually have a caller right now um, who had a question about Betsy DeVos. Um, we have Reggie calling in from Georgia. Reggie, are you on the line? Yes, happy Thursday to you guys. Happy Thursday to you, Reggie. What's your question? Well, I would just like to know why exactly the hell would he pick her as the Secretary of Public Education? Isn't she a multi-million or billionaire or something like that? Why he? Why couldn't he just pick somebody who actually believes in public education for all? That's an excellent question. I, I have the same question. <laughs> Let me up your question, Reggie. Well, Reggie, yeah, you hit the, you hit the nail on the head. He's picked someone who, uh, one, never attended a public school in her life. Two has never sent her chil- any of her children to public schools in her life. In her life, has never taught school in her life, and um, sh- has the- and her only connection to education is through her uh, fa- her family fortune to push these types of privatization schemes, um, and uh, her political connections. Uh, they have donated a lot to not only education causes but to conservative causes uh, around the country. Um, you know, as I mentioned, she's the two-time uh, Republican chair of the state of Michigan. She has and her family have donated um, uh, millions of dollars to conservative groups like AEI and others and contributed to, to efforts to oppose um, same-sex marriage in states um, for, for, for groups to push things like conversion therapy, which is really concerning when you see see, uh, you know, one of the big roles for uh, the federal government and the U.S. Department of Education is that of equity and protecting the civil rights of, of all students, including those uh, uh, that may be LGBT. Absolutely. And 
I guess I just wanted to add, she, she also has sort of a bit of a record of not taking care of the most vulnerable students in our public school system. Uh, a lot of these privatization vouchers want to get away from serving maybe students with disabilities and other people who need access and opportunity to a quality education. And I guess it just it just seems like they want to hollow out the one the one institution that kind of from the beginning of a person's life can set them out set them up for success it doesn't seem to match the populist record rec- rhetoric excuse me of you know giving everybody a fair shot yeah no absolutely it's the path to the middle class education well, before we go to break, I think that, you know, this is really discouraging, especially I did not know all those things you just said. Well, so the, uh, the Trump nominee for Department of Education secretary has never attended, taught at, or sent her children to a public school. That's correct. That's really something. Well, okay. So, the, but this is not over, right? She's just a nominee. So how can people take action to really make sure that this person that sounds like she'll dismantle our public education system does not get in there to become the secretary of education. So I think the first thing that they should do is talk to their home state senator. Uh, Our caller was from Georgia. The two senators uh, from Georgia are Republicans. He should make sure that they know that he has questions and concerns about this nominee. The Senate has to confirm uh, a nominee for a secretary, a secretary, all the nominee, nominees for the agencies. And so there will be a period of review uh, where where senators can raise these questions and she can answer. Um, and hopefully she'll be able to present some sort of vision that, that reassures people. But yeah. right now, it's not very reassuring. We're concerned. We're yeah. concerned. Well, great. So this is the Leslie Marshall Show Millennial Takeover. The, the theme right now is call your senator, folks. Stop these nominees. Um, we'll be right back after a short break to keep talking about education. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Maggie Thompson, uh, the head of Generation Progress here at the Center for American Progress. I've got two rabble-rousing guests here, Elizabeth Baylor, the director of post-secondary education here at CAP, and Will Raglan, the campaign director for education policy here at CAP. Um, We are talking about Betsy DeVos, who is Donald Trump's nominee for Secretary of Education. And Will just told us in the last segment that Betsy DeVos is a Secretary of Ed nominee who has never taught, attended, or sent her children to a public school. So, something. It's really something. Uh, So we talked a little bit about sort of uh, her record when it comes to charter schools and private school vouchers and sort of what that means, um, you know, for the education system. But I don't we didn't really go into much about what that means in terms of disinvesting in our public schools. We just talked about sort of how sometimes these schools, they don't have as good of outcomes for people. But, well, could you walk us through a little bit if 
if we go towards this voucher system and if we go sort of in this direction of privatization, what does that do to our public schools? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first I'll start with, so, um, you know, charter schools are public schools when, when done well. And, um, you know, there are, there, you know, again, uh, the, the model that this, uh, potential secretary of education could pursue is, is not great. Um, but I guess I'll start with the proposal that Trump laid out in September uh, for his voucher-style program um, that uh, is uh, is tailor-made for Betsy DeVos. Um, essentially, um, the federal government is uh, a, a safeguard. Um, they provide uh, resources and supports for those that most at risk, the, the low-income students with disabilities, homeless students, migrant students. Um, and essentially what this, this, uh, his pr- uh, plan would do was to take money away from those programs and put it into a big pot uh, that would be split up among uh, uh, 11 million low-income kids, uh, and each would receive $1,800 apiece from the federal government each year. Uh, this would cover less than uh, 80%. Uh, this would cover less than 80% of uh, average uh, private school tuition every year. So essentially, he's giving the wealthy more money and leaving the low income uh, without uh, his so-called school choice and. Uh, starving the very public school systems that have been serving them uh, to start with. Um, so that is really troubling when you look at some of the numbers. Uh, the federal government uh, is a, plays a small role in funding most public schools, but they do serve over 24 million low-income poor, uh, poor students. 66% of all black children are served by that fund. 68% of all Hispanic children are served by, by that funding. Um, the their their programming for special education students uh, is is also a big program at the department, which serves over seven million students with disabilities, and that actually is a big cost driver for 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 local schools to be able to serve mm-hmm. a lot of these types of kids. Wow. Um, then you look at some of the programs that serve your 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 rural areas and uh, your, your 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 schools that are serving large populations of homeless children or or, or migrant children, and it really does start to add up. Wow. In our last segment, we were talking about how Trump's infrastructure plan, in quotes, because it's not really a plan, it's actually sort of a tax giveaway mm. um, that leaves behind some of the areas of the country that voted for him. And it sounds like this this could be a similar path if she gets in there, especially if you're talking about leaving behind schools that need that funding, like rural school districts and things like that. Absolutely. And when you look at uh, rural areas um, and you're talking about this type of plan, there there really is no other choice uh, besides your, mm-hmm. your your traditional public school that is uh, that has served kids there for generations. Uh, yes, uh, we have improvements to make, but things are moving in the right direction. Uh, currently, we have the uh, best graduation rate that we've ever had. Um, test scores are trending in the right direction. Uh, College-going rates are at record highs, um, especially for for, ki- for, for um, kids from uh, uh, or kids of color. So, uh, you know, yes, we have we, we have improvements to make, but we're headed in, headed in the right direction. It would be a shame uh, for for this secretary and this president to to, to uh, stop progress and even 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 reverse it. Yeah, absolutely, highest graduation rate ever, Elizabeth. I, what is I know that her record is mostly in the K through 12 sector, but we talk a lot about disinvestment in higher education and just what what can we sort of uh, 
not not guess at, but like what what would you predict for her sort of tack on higher education when it comes to this issue of sort of disinvesting in public schools? So it. When you look at American colleges, 75% of American college students go to a public college. Uh, but since the recession, state governments have, have had to make drastic cuts to their college system, and that means that families have to bear a larger tuition budget, or tu- tuition bill, excuse me. And, you know, the Obama administration and congressional Democrats have been working really hard to come up with some plans so that would basically create federal matching dollars so that states would invest more in public public colleges so that tuition is more affordable for families. And I think that, unfortunately, with someone like Secretary DeVos, my, my concern would be that those plans would be off the table. I, I hope that's not true because I really think that it's important that we support our public colleges, but that's the thing to be keeping an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So public education. We got public education <laughs> at it's every a, level. <laughs> it's good quality education at the college level. It's affordable. It's accessible to low-income students. It's access, accessible to students of color. And it provides one of the best paths to the middle class. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we haven't talked that much this hour about student debt, and that's something that we've talked a lot about on this program before, really just how the student debt crisis is sort of hanging um, you know, this weight on um, American borrowers, especially um, borrowers um, from communities of color who um, just are, are struggling under their student debt. Um, you know, is there any reason that we should think that Betsy DeVos is going to do anything to help student loan borrowers or address this, the student loan problem? Well, we haven't really seen a lot. Um, and one of the things that's concerning is that the Republican, the indications are in the in the wrong direction. So the Republican platform this year said that they wanted to turn the student loan programs back to the banks, and that would mean that that would hollow out billions of dollars that right now gets plowed into Pell Grants, and instead would go to basically provide uh, sort of like money for the middleman of the bank to lend students uh, money for tuition. So more banks making more money. This also sounds a little bit like his infrastructure non-plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully there, there'll be more information. But, you know, going off of what the Republican platform says and with Republicans in charge in Congress and the Republican administration, privatization seems to be the direction. Mm-hmm. Banks in banks lending your student, banks in charge of your student loans and and other things I've read have said that some of the forgiveness programs and the income support programs uh, will be on the chopping block. Yeah. And we know based on the market right now that if you have a private student loan, and I'm sure that there are some listeners with those private student loans, those terms aren't good. Those interest rates are high, and they're not a great deal for students and borrowers. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If you look at the uh, at the stock prices of, of some of the student loan companies since this election, they're up, 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 because... Wall Street is expecting uh, a boom under the Trump administration. Yeah, that was, that was the, the amazing thing after after the election. You know, Navient, Great Lakes, those companies that just spiked their their stocks and everything else. The rest of the market was going down. Yeah, and let's not forget that um, you know he's likely get, uh, at least the way things are looking right now, likely to have three um, either alum or current employees, uh, high level employees from Goldman Sachs. Oh yeah, well let's. <laughs> <laughs> Man, boom times are back for Wall Street. And it just, um, you know, but I think that we're, we've talked a lot about how bad this could be if Betsy DeVos gets in there. But I think that 
you know, we talked a lot about a call to action and that this is not done yet. You Absolutely. Know, she's not in there yet. We're, we're going to have a fight about this. We will have a fight about this. So, Elizabeth, you said the best thing for people to do is to call their senators. But where else can people go to get more information about this? Come to the Center for American Progress and to Generation Progress. We do analytics every day about what's happening in higher education, what's happening to students, who are, who's impacted by the policy ideas. Come read our come read our information. Absolutely, and I would just add too, we've got a great transition tracker that we just launched on our Medium page. Uh, if you go onto Medium dot com uh, uh, you can find uh, and you and you follow cap action you'll be able to find great resources on everybody that Trump has has nominated and actions you can take both digitally uh, with uh, uh, some of your social media account on Facebook on Twitter but also information on how you can interact with your your local representatives fantastic well thank you so much to you both this is the Leslie Marshall show call your senators folks let's fight back <laughs>